And so this plant harnesses the power of the atom so that we have the energy to run everything from your favorite video game to yummy cotton candy machines. <laughs> Let's learn more about nuclear energy, shall we? Lights. When most people think of nuclear energy, they think of this. But when we talk about nuclear energy, we really mean this. But what exactly is nuclear energy? I don't know, but I know someone who does. Smiling Joe Fission. Hi there, energy eaters. I'm Smiling Joe Fission, your atomic tour guide to the strange and exciting world of nuclear power. And these are rods of uranium-235. Hi, Rod. Hey, Rod. Uh, How you doing, hey, Rod? Good to see you. Hey, you guys look hot. Of course we're hot. We're radioactive. Uh-oh. Well, how about a dip in the pool? Yeah. 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 spins turbines that generate energy. Bert, sit down. Uh-oh, whoops. Looks like there's a little leftover nuclear waste. No problem. I'll just put it where nobody will find it for a million years. Well, so now you know the whole true story of nuclear energy. Our no longer misunderstood friend. So keep on smiling. Hello, listeners. This is Emmett. Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. As you all know, I am based in Nukepild. I'm a big supporter of nuclear energy. And today I have with me a friend and colleague, Madison Serwinski of the Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal. What is up, Maddie? Hey, Emmett. Thanks for having me. So today we are going to talk about something that happened very recently, the closure of the Indian Point plant in New York State. And we're gonna talk about this for a few reasons. Uh, One, because it's related to the conversations we've already had on the podcast with Mark Nelson and Meredith Angwin about energy issues. And those are sort of our infrastructure conversation bread and butter at this point. And because it gives us an opportunity to talk about what is going on with the U.S. nuclear fleet and what it's going to mean or take to try to steward these things so that, you know, something is possible later on. And Maddie was there at the closure. This Was that Friday? Yeah, it was Friday, this past Friday. Yeah, um, which was quite a sad day for the workers there. And I was wondering, uh, Maddie, if you could sort of like talk us through the broad strokes of what happened with this plant closure. Sure. So this closure was announced back in 2017. So this has been hanging over the workers' heads for years now. Basically, how it played out is it was New York's only profitable nuclear plant. And the upstate plants were underwater for a lot of the reasons you've already gone over in your podcast, facing those same sort of pressures from cheap natural gas and subsidized renewables. So Cuomo decided that he would allow those upstate plants to get proper recognition in the market for clean energy productions, basically uh, zero emissions credits in exchange for Indian Point not receiving a license extension. So some people have said, oh, like they didn't, Entergy didn't even go through the process. No, like it had all of its materials into the NRC and Cuomo said, we're going to shut this down if these other plants are going to keep living. He cited public safety concerns as his reason. So, oh, this is really close to Manhattan. Like, 
we don't really have an emergency plan other than handing out iodine pills if something goes wrong, which ironically would be a decent start to an emergency plan. Pretty good. you know. Like- yeah, especially given what we know now post Chernobyl and Fukushima, it's like, yeah, that would pretty much do it um, and don't evacuate. And there you have it. But yeah, so on Friday, Indian Point, what makes this even more painful is it had just broken a record for light water reactors. It had hit 751 continuous days of operation and went went dark at 11 p.m. on Friday. And we were all sort of talking about it after. And it's like, you know, watching Secretariat win the Kentucky Derby and then be shipped off to the glue factory. Like, you know. Totally. It, it uh, it's sort of hard to explain when people are like, but why did the plant have to go? But why? And, and I don't have a good answer other than that's just politics. It was making money. Um, they certainly need the demand on the system. It's one of the most densely energy dense nuclear plants in mm-hmm. the country next to one of the most dense population centers in America that's perfectly matched. Um, so this was a long time coming and just a, an extremely sad day for the community of Buchanan and all of the workers that had either lost their jobs or will be transitioned to something else. How many jobs was it at that plant? When both uh, reactors were up and running, that was a thousand. So shutting down the second reactor last year, that got down to 750. And now, you know, there will be some amount of transition of workers who are able to move to go to other plants. Um, Some are staying on for decommissioning. Um, and some are just not able to do either. The thing that they don't tell you about decommissioning is that whole tax. So the company that is purchasing the plant to do the decommissioning, they will keep the employee's salaries, I think, for about a year. But that's the guarantee. And then they're dropped down to like typical whole tax salaries, which, spoiler alert, are not nearly as good as, you know, actually operating and working at the plant. So even that is a pretty shitty severance package when you have to keep working, knowing that a big salary cut is coming your way. It's just kind of amazing. Like none of these communities where decommissioning happens ever really recover. Like there's no, there's no economy that replaces this. Uh, New York is going to move into the dark triad of grid instability that Meredith Angwin talks about, which is overbuilding of renewables, over-reliance on imports, and too much just-in-time natural gas, right? So now it's spoiling for something to go wrong when it gets really cold over in New York. Right. And there was definitely a lot of recognition of that at the farewell ceremony. You know, you had the the state politicians come and say, oh, this is the end, but also a beginning because we have this wonderful new opportunity to adapt and, you know, see what our future holds. And then a lot of the union reps and leaders, some who have been working since unit one was online, said, no, this is actually a really dark day for the community because these jobs will never be replaced. This power is being replaced by natural gas. This, the mayor even said, you know, this reactor, I feel like this reactor had a lot of life left in it. The major players in getting this closed do really seem to be environmental groups and their relationship to the Democratic Party and how they can force these things through, like NRDC, National Resource Defense Council, which infamously has taken natural gas money in the past. Uh, this, and they tweeted triumphantly about it closing. Right. So did the Sierra Club, 
actually, who swiftly deleted it, and I have not been able to find any screen caps. Damn, gotta get those receipts. I know, I know. And then <laughs> this New York group called Riverkeeper. They worked hand in hand with Cuomo to actually get the plant shut down. And, you know, then they they won a lawsuit where basically Entergy, I think either Entergy or the community had to pay them for the damage. And and they're like, oh, well, we accepted the check ceremoniously, but we would never cash this dirty check. So we're not actually on the take from the industry. And it's like, oh, well, that's good for the public just to have them pay you without it, it was just like so fucking bullshit. Um, yeah. Alec Baldwin also played a big role in this. And he tweeted in favor of Indian Point's closing the day it happened. He's in tight with all these groups. I mean, a lot of these celebrities are. You know, this is how they're all bound up together, really. Right. And I've even seen a lot of people, you know, defend some of the progressive faction of the party saying, well, come on, guys, the Green New Deal is not anti-nuclear. In fact, AOC said she left the door open for nuclear and that it's possible to do nuclear in the Green New Deal as long as we do it safely and environmentally consciously. And it's like she advocated for the closure of Indian Point. And as the time drew near and it became more clear that it would be replaced by natural gas, she stayed quiet until it was too late to do anything. Like, how can you say that that's pro-nuclear, leaves the door open for nuclear? You advocated for the closure of already on carbon-free electricity. So whatever's going on here, it's certainly not in the name of the environment or decarbonization. And I think people really need to realize that. And it's not like Bernie Sanders has a great track record with this either. He fought to close Vermont Yankee in Vermont, which there was pretty much no reason to. Plenty of Christian Parenti, a famous leftist, um, wrote a big takedown of Vermont Yankee and its safety concerns and never even bothered to interview a single unionized worker who worked at the plant. I mean, at some point you have to realize that these people just aren't your friends and that they actually aren't the friends of plenty of people who are in the labor movement already who pay union dues and who are fighting to keep their plants alive because this isn't only happening in new york right this is happening where else i know in your our home state or no you're from wisconsin but you live now in (laughs) illinois my home state right i mean it's all deep blue states with climate commitments right it's new york it's california it's vermont it's i mean illinois it's you know new jersey now new jersey actually just re-upped its zero emissions credit programs for its nuclear plants. And it won a unanimous vote against or from the commissioner saying, we're not gonna go the way of California. We're not gonna, you know, be reliant on weather dependent energies at the expense of the clean electricity we already have. So that was a win. But yeah, you see a lot of these nuclear plants in democratic states facing these same enemies. It's Sierra Club, it's NRDC, it's progressive climate activists who claim that climate change is the biggest problem, except I guess for whatever problems nuclear plants cause because that's a bigger deal, you know? Yeah, this seems like old boomer Cold War politics that have been totally zombified and like most of the new left sucked up into the you know machine of the democratic party right my most charitable read is just like yeah this is cold war politics that just got ingrained and no one has looked critically so it's just yeah the standard platform is anti-nuclear but I mean, if so, that's just incredibly lazy. And then I don't, again, I don't think these people care as much about climate as then as they say then. Like, these people aren't stupid. AOC is not dumb. I think she, I mean, she certainly has the capability of understanding the World Health Organization's 
data on health and safety and the NRC's, um, you know, standards for environmental protection and licensing. So I don't know what to say at this point, other than best case scenario, it's just, they're not critically looking at themselves, at themselves. Yeah, or the interests line up or they don't have to care about this. They're not going to have to deal with really any of the long-term effects until it might be too late. And we have more and more Texas situations where there are rolling blackouts during tough winter months and stuff like that, especially in these cold weather states. I mean, what's the outlook on the nuclear fleet right now? Because you said it's under assault in deep blue states that have these very neoliberalized grids that benefit renewables and natural gas, because those are basically the same thing once you're in those grids. Right. Like what's going on? Give me the lowdown. So I think the best estimate we have right now is that we could lose up to a third of our nuclear capacity in the next decade. Um, both as a result of, yeah, um, economics and then just purely political closures like California. Um, that's another pretty similar example to Indian Point where NRDC, Sierra Club, large, well-funded environmental groups um, were hell-bent on shutting down this plant. And at best, Gavin Newsom was complicit. It, Worst, he was crooked and ha was also very intentioned on closing this plant down. And California is already seeing blackouts. That's with this plant still online. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of reasons to be worried, even in, you know, in Illinois, where we're currently fighting to keep two of our six nuclear plants online. They're scheduled to be closed before the end of the year. And people ask, well, why? Like, who's closing them down here? The governor is supportive. He said he recognizes the importance of the nuclear fleet and the clean electricity it produces. The state legislature is supportive. They're currently in session right now looking at how to protect the nuclear plants from premature closure people are not as anti-nuclear, you know, in general, in Illinois, where we actually are less anti-nuclear, or there's a higher public perception for nuclear, and yet they still may close because of the issues in the market that you've talked with Meredith and Mark about. So it's not looking good. And certainly, considering the performance of the fleet and the fact that it has so much unlocked potential, they are just, the opportunity cost of losing these reactors is immense. It is extremely, extremely large. Right, because eventually if a nation state shuts down its nuclear program, and I think there've been a few that have at least at this point, mm -hmm no one has ever recovered it because there's no reason for, for those higher skill jobs to have higher ed tracks. People don't aspire to it anymore. The people who can do it move on to something else or exit the industry entirely. I mean, this is sort of what we talk about when we talk about negative path dependencies exactly. and things we've talked about, especially like when the show first launched about like supply chain issues and stuff like that, where eventually you become so committed structurally to these things that you can't pull out of the nosedive. Yeah. I mean, we're sort of nuclear in the U S is at risk of becoming like Roman concrete where we have some left, but no one knows how to make it anymore. And the one like really glimmering bright light of hope is Vogel, mm -hmm. um, which is two AP 1000 reactors built on an existing nuclear plant site in Georgia that are set to come online that one this year and one next year. But there are no plans to capitalize on the 
team that's been assembled there, the supply chains that delivered the project, the tacit knowledge and expertise gained. Um, so yeah, there. Uh, if we don't find a way to build, we may, it, it would be extraordinarily difficult to restart after that again, yet again. My understanding is that that's because nuclear isn't something you innovate, it is something you repeat. So at various nuclear plants in America, sometimes we have like multiple reactor types on site, right? Which mm -hmm. means that you have to learn how to do two different, very complicated things at different times, which means that it creates a learning curve that adds all sorts of like price externalities to how to do it. Whereas like in South Korea, in France and in Russia, they're just like, we stamp out the same thing every time and they cheapen it over time because they get better at it. Right. Like when we started the Vogel project, the, the fucking reactor design wasn't done. The blueprints weren't finished. Like we embarked on this first of a kind reactor that literally wasn't even finished on paper. So when, you know, you hear the critiques about being over, you know, over budget and behind schedule. It's like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> um, but yeah, now of course we've done that's going to that. happen. Right, of course. But now we've done that hard work and the brain geniuses who are in charge of deciding where nuclear goes next think we need a different reactor, like a new first of a kind, as if that's somehow going to erase like big engineering mega projects being hard without gaining any of the advantage of we just actually will be delivering this project into the real world. It's very, very backwards. Right. So the other thing that I hear a lot about is like, well, why there are all these problems with third generation nuclear. Don't you know, they melt down and kill tens of thousands of people every 20 years, uh, which is like a total fabrication, but um <laughs> You know, what you really want is you want that new car smell. You want that nuclear that's not like other girls. You want <laughs> advanced nuclear. What is this whole advanced nuclear thing? Can you explain this to me? Right. Yes. So the whole reason that this podcast exists is because nothing feels possible. And that is true of the nuclear industry, too. Um, and so they have decided that. It's not because engineering is hard and we've offshored a lot of our industry that nuclear is hard to build. They've decided we've just picked the wrong design and we need to do something easier. And by the way, it'll also be something that we've never done before because we'll just leapfrog ahead of everyone else and do something that no one else in the world is doing. Um, to get there and regain our competencies and our leadership. But it's just a, I mean, it shows like a fundamental misunderstanding of what's actually happening in the world and just basic engineering principles. For example, let's look at the, the very popular reactor being talked about in the U.S. That's, that we're going to be building and then exporting our, our small modular reactors. These app, the actual modules that are built in a factory are very complicated from an engineering perspective, like equally, if not more so than any singular part built in a factory for the AP 1000, say, which like the AP 1000 parts are also built in a factory. So what does that even mean anymore? Like it's word salad, but let's stick with the modules. So either we say that we are going to build these in the US and like, it's gonna be just as difficult. So if we're gonna do that undertaking, like the forging and the factory production necessary to build something that complex, why not get the economies of scale and build a big reactor? Or you're admitting that we're going to outsource the actual manufacturing to South Korea or Japan who have those engineering capabilities. And again, 
they can deliver large reactors on time and on budget. So why don't we have them build a knockoff AP 1000 or system 80? Like it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't have to because it just is far from existing in the real world. If you are actually good at small modular reactors, for example, Russia has a small modular reactor program, you'll find just as they did, just as China is, that it's cheaper to build large modular reactors. So it's sort of a fantasy that we're going to find a technology that can erase the problems of deindustrialization and foregoing actual nuclear building for this long. Um, that's basically where that impulse comes from. It's like, no, we can escape mm -hmm. the mistakes of the past because of this magical design that won't have any of the problems of the other first of a kind reactors that we've already tried to build. Right, we can expect all the same learning curves and inertias from trying to churn these things out. They're smaller, so you don't benefit from the economies of scale you get in doing a big one. I mean, this just sounds like, um, you know, small is beautiful wrapped in Silicon Valley aspiration. Yep, that's that's what I think it is, exactly that. And I mean, it's it's hard for any sort of, you can't like Silicon Valley your way to nuclear. It requires an immense amount of capital up front. It requires sort of like whole economies worth of collaboration and effort. Like I, I don't see how they think we're gonna compete, have like competing private companies deliver us like abundant, cheap, reliable power. So one of the bugbears that people bring up when they talk about nuclear, and I'm bringing this up now because I said on an early episode I would, so now I have to, is the waste issue. What's the, what are the realities of this nuclear waste thing? Yeah, so whenever anyone talks about the waste, I've learned this trick from our friend Mark. I always ask, the first question is like, describe the waste. Like, what are you talking about? And they don't know. I'm like, why don't you draw it? It might be easier for you to draw it. And it's a little bit trolly, but it helps people realize they don't actually know. They have no idea. Like occasionally you'll get someone drawing like green goo from the Simpsons and the three-eyed fish or something. But a lot of people don't really have a visualization of what it is, let alone like a concept. Basically what it is, nuclear waste is the spent fuel rods that come out of the reactor. So there are these long metal bars in a fuel assembly. Um, and yeah, they're allowed to cool for a while and then they're transferred into these big dry cask storage containers, which are just steel and concrete that are, you know, designed beyond belief to withstand earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, like the literal apocalypse would not be able to crack this thing. And then they just sit on site. Um, in in uh, the Netherlands, they have, you know, basically a basketball court's worth of used nuclear fuel. In the U.S., if we stacked all of our used nuclear fuel on a football field, it would go like, I think, 50 feet high. The concern over the waste, especially given what we know now, like I can even forgive in the 60s and 70s when there are still communities in the U.S. who are dealing with like the total mismanagement of waste related to like proliferation and the Cold War. And now we're doing this commercial nuclear thing. I can understand that skepticism. But after you know, 70 years of proper waste management, which has only been made better through the commercial nuclear energy industry. It, it's just like a concern. They either don't know and they're parroting lies that they've heard from the NRDC or Sierra Club, or they're lying and there's something else hidden behind that particular concern. Right. I mean, Obviously, you and I are both 
extremely angry about what's happening with the nuclear fleet now. And like one of the things that I've often tried to avoid on the show is like dunking and I am failing at like pulling myself back from the brink of that right now. But I think like the way I was thinking about it was like this, right? Because I knew that you were coming on today and I was thinking back like, okay, how would I explain to somebody like why this is important, right? And then I was thinking about like, well, I'm doing this recording on my laptop, which is plugged into the wall next to me, which needs electricity from the grid, which my apartment needs, which all of the buildings near me need, including the grocery store where I get my food, because that's how they keep everything refrigerated, including the places where all of that stuff is made. Like if you just walk it back, you realize how fundamental electricity is to living in industrial society and that if it fails everything connected in that chain fails so when these environmental groups come out and lie and misrepresent what's going on cause these people to lose their jobs which is devastating for these communities and for these workers it's not just that it has these localized effects, it's that it has this ripple out effect and destabilizes what is otherwise one of the greatest achievements uh, in human history, which is the US electrical grid. It's because we have, we've built a great grid, we've managed to become a very wealthy country. Now there's a lot of other stuff that goes into why we're wealthy that is not so kosher, but <laughs> like that's important to remember that if you live here, you have a stake in that functioning that this whole thing is connected to it. Like, it's not that Texas was the only state that was stressed out when the cold snap came. Like every other state around Texas very artfully maneuvered their way out of having serious blackouts like that. And that's also why Texas could not import anything. People who are talking about New York State and they're like, well, we can get stuff from Canada. It's like, no, you can't, not when you need it because it gets cold in Canada too. And they're not going to sell you their energy when they need it themselves, nor should they be expected to. Right, well, and that was the thing that like infuriated me about Texas is people were saying, oh, well, Texas, it's not a problem with renewables. It's a problem that it's its own grid. And so if it had been able to import from neighbors like and had been connected, I was just like, but if, everyone decides to follow Texas and build out massive like solar and wind farms and everyone's pursuing that same 100% renewables dream then what like eventually you run out of people to provide you the electricity when shit goes down right like that and then and again like I'm not surprised but like Texas is still a macro grid and you have these same people who are saying like, no, the problem with Texas is it wasn't connected to a bigger grid talking about wanting to do micro grids and localized distributed energy. And it's just like so clear that there is just no engineering discipline in any of these plans. There's no concept of how the grid works, how much of a marvel it is, what a like delicate game it is to match supply to demand within like less than seconds. It's something we absolutely take for granted and we're a really wealthy country, which means we have a huge margin of error. That's what our wealth provides us. But in Texas, like that's 200 people dead and $200 billion. There was also some sort of, um, it was a semiconductor fab that experienced hundreds of millions in setbacks because semiconductor wafers take 60 days to make. So if you have a rolling blackout in the middle of that, like you just lose all of that you work just, now. Yeah. It's, that's, it's over. You know, like we're, we still don't know the full price tag of what no. exactly happened in Texas. And like no one in their right mind is going to build a semiconductor fab in Texas now. In Texas. Because yeah. you can't, no one's going to be like, yeah, I'd love to budget in hundreds of millions of dollars potentially every couple of years. Because people are like, this is a once in a generation thing. But unless the Texas legislature succeeds in making, reorganizing its grid so that, you know, they winterize stuff, et cetera, et cetera, and stabilize it somehow, 
like this will happen again. Right. And it's not even just that like renewables are bad in a crisis. It's like they create the crisis. So what a lot of people don't realize is a few weeks after the big Texas blackout, ERCOT was in a massive problem again, where it got really close to either rolling blackouts and having to shunt off part of the grid and prices were up. I hate to pull numbers out of my ass, but I think like $3,500 a megawatt hour again. And it was just like, not as sunny. You know what I mean? Or like, didn't get enough rain, like forecasted. (laughs) It's just like, yeah, that's something that you can't necessarily account for. In Germany, they have 10, they from one year to another installed 10% more solar and had less solar electricity, I believe last year, because it just wasn't as sunny. It's incredibly hard to do any sort of planning around something with such extreme variability, let alone something as important as electricity. Saying that like, oh, electricity is important for like making money, having a developed economy, industrialization is saying like, yeah, like oxygen is like kind of important for breathing. It's like, if you don't have it, you don't, you die. If you don't have electricity, you are not an industrial economy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're just, you've reverted to developing world status. So, okay, here's something that I hear all the time. And it's this, it's like, okay, so why can't we all just get along? Like, it seems like most, some people say like, the thing that we're really against is the fossil fuel companies. So like, maybe you're nuclear skeptical or whatever, but like, you can be on my side because why can't we do both, right? We need a variety of solutions to solve a complex problem like climate change. That doesn't really seem to pan out the way that people sell it. What's, what are the actual dynamics? There? Right. I mean, that's sort of cover for I like business as usual and I don't want to be criticized for not being pro-nuclear. You know, credit where credit is due, the pro-nuclear movement has successfully sort of shifted the discourse where like, it's really hard to say, yeah, I'm just not for nuclear, especially if you care about climate. So you find other sort of ways to say, no, 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 I'm totally for it. But like, if we're not actually, you know, talking about having the World Bank fund nuclear projects abroad, if we're not actually putting publicly back finance forward for nuclear, if we're not establishing, like, then we're just going to keep doing what we're doing, right? Um, And sorry, I sort of lost my train of thought with that. No, I mean, what you're saying is like, yeah, anybody can say whatever they want, but unless they put their money where their mouth is, it's not going to work. And I'd say the other thing that gets stacked on top of this dynamic is it reminds me sort of the Medicare for all discourse in 2020, where it was like, you had people being like, yeah, I'm totally for Medicare for all by which I mean like tax exemptions for like, you know, like all these cockamamie plans that every candidate rolled out so that they could say M4A without really having to commit to it, even rhetorically. It's the same thing, but it's also that I think at a material level, like the path dependency we've talked about, if you're like, well, I want to do both what you're not accepting is the way in which the grid has been neoliberalized to advantage renewables and therefore natural gas over nuclear and forces it off the grid because of the way the prices work within these RTO areas where you get paid to take energy from renewables. You know, I had somebody say to me the other day, like, well, then we just shouldn't provide those subsidies. And it's like, well, yeah, but like, what does that mean? Like, what are you actually saying there? Yeah, we right. shouldn't do this, but we should just let them neutrally compete. But like energy isn't a market. Right, exactly. And and honestly, it's like, even if you can convince people on the market, like, yeah, that's, that's fucked up. It shouldn't be a market really like in my dream, it's that the state is doing this or like a publicly owned utility. It's like, 
okay, then saying that all of the above and we're going to do it all is the equivalent of, you know, I'm going to have a fire in my fireplace and have my personal space heater and turn on some of the gas, my gas range, um, and have a little bit of central heating. It's like, why not just the cent why not just the thing that works well and can deliver best when it's the one good thing mm. you know like there i think there's this like misunderstanding that there are different sort of roles to play and i think unless you're talking about like a remote off the grid you know place that doesn't make sense to run distribution and transmission to it's gonna be building reactors at the plants that already have distribution lines, transmission lines, like not trying to build new systems on top of existing systems that don't actually replace what we already have. It's just like trying to construct a Rube Goldberg machine for the sake of everyone getting along. Yeah, totally, which is not accounting for the material realities of these things, right? Like certain things just have to be done a certain way for them to work. It's not like you can't just do anything and then you have your plan be cross your fingers. Right. And I mean, like, I think you, your podcast and your guests have done a really good job on sort of covering the why that's bad for the grid. But I mean, there are just a lot of metrics that we need to be looking at when it comes to a, an energy transition. And something that I saw today is, um, an environmental group in the Mojave Desert um, reporting that this solar project is being pushed ahead that is on public lands um, with multiple endangered species is going to take up like square miles of like pristine ecosystem. It's like, okay, so if this if this technology is not good for the grid, it requires hugely like you know orders of magnitude more land materials um and, and it still can't do the job then what are we doing here you know right yeah no exactly i mean i think it's funny there's that piece that came out and i think bloomberg the other day that was like we're gonna need like so much land use to get this right and of course when you know our friend and colleague adrian and i released our piece on a nuclear new deal. Um, we had this land use graphic designed by Eric Vogt, friend of the show who also did our exhaust little battery guy logo. What's mm -hmm. up, Eric? Uh, <laughs> thank you. And um, it showed what the land use impact would be for replacing the grid with what you needed in to, to 2019. So that was like uh, 4,100 terawatt hours, I think. And mm -hmm to do it in all solar or wind, it was 80 to 85% of the size of Ohio is what you would need. And then to do it with nuclear, it was smaller than Chicago. Yeah, it's like something like a third of Chicago even. Yes. Or, yeah, orders of magnitude. Right. Less land use. And again, that's like assuming that that wind or solar, like that's just to generate that much electricity that's not saying always on or reliable like it still can't replace that and so it was funny yeah when i saw that i mean i have been called a concern troll for the past four years by pointing out the very serious land use impacts and biodiversity concerns of distributed energy and then seeing that Bloomberg article is like the meme, like they just, you know, they just admit oh my it. God, oh my God, he admitted it. He yeah. admitted it. <laughs> I was like, yeah. And keeping our blinders on to things like that, because it's like, oh, that's bad for renewables. Again, it's like, then what's the, is the end goal decarbonization and environmental protection or is it renewables? Because if it's the former, then clearly this ain't it, chief um yeah yeah exactly so like okay i think we've identified the problem like nuclear is under assault from multiple fronts one mm -hmm. of it is that half the country is in like these rto areas that advantage natural gas and renewables so in a 
economic way it's being forced off the grid and then it's also been under attack for several decades by environmental groups who seem to be working whether they know it or not in some cases i think they do know it in simpatico with the fossil fuel industry to force more nuclear off the grid what's your vision for how this gets solved right well before when we were talking about building nuclear we were just saying like, it's really hard. And I am inclined to agree with people who say we can't afford to build another Vogel in this country. But I think we can afford to build 50 more Vogels. It's really about committing ourselves to a nuclear build out. And honestly, that starts with just, for God's sakes, not shutting down any more reactors. I mean, just today, the Surrey nuclear plant in Virginia got its license extended another 20 years to 80 years. Um, now the NRC is looking at licenses out to 120 years. I Indian Point would have been around longer than I will be if we allowed it to. So stop the closures, first and foremost. Second is you commit to a build a series build of the same reactor over and over and over again. That's currently what's happening in the UK. They have their own sort of AP1000 equivalent called the EPR and they built it. And just like Vogel, it's disastrously over budget and behind schedule. And yet they've just committed to another build of the same reactor and are now looking to start progress on a third. So having that, um, I mean, that's just where we have to start. Like that's the goal, right? And then how we deliver it, I think is very much up in the air. Southern is a private utility in one of the old non-RTO areas. So it's still that like monopoly utility um, system and structure, and they're going to deliver it. I mean, knock on wood, but it will come online in the next two years. So they've proven that that model can deliver 21st century nuclear. Another option is the TVA. A lot of people don't realize that the TVA was the um, delivered America's only 21st century reactor. Um, and they've also upgraded a bunch of their plants, like really invested in nuclear to get uprates of, I think like 13% on each reactor. So publicly owned, like a, a federal vehicle for publicly owned power is also an option. But I think that stuff comes once we've decided that we value nuclear, we know we need it and have to reestablish ourselves as leaders of the technology. Okay, so I think like if I'm a renewables advocate, right, if I'm a mm -hmm. green new dealer, one of my first responses is going to be like, well, I just heard you talk about how fucking expensive it is. Mm -hmm. Like, don't you know that renewables are cheaper to roll out? So like, why would we, even if we could have the benefits of repeat reactor builds, why would we invest all of that money when we could do it more cheaply with renewables? Right. Well, first of all, you can't do it with renewables. But what I would actually say is nuclear is an expensive way to make cheap electricity. Renewables are a cheap way to make electricity expensive. So the issue with nuclear, when people say nuclear is expensive, they're not talking about what we pay on our uh, electricity bills. In fact, Illinois in 2016 subsidized two of its nuclear plants and a study from Carnegie Mellon that just came out shows that we saved money on our electricity bills because of it. So it's not that the, the cost to the consumer is expensive. What they're saying is that there's this high upfront capital cost for nuclear, which is true. It's like any big mega project, like a you know rail system and other things that we, you know, infrastructure that we've decided are an important public good. So once these plants are online, for example, in Vogel or in the Southern utility area, 
the consumers are already paying for a nuclear plant that hasn't come online yet and their electricity prices are still lower than in Texas. And they're gonna get decades and decades and decades of cheap, reliable, clean electricity. So the whole, again, if you're hearing someone say nuclear is expensive, they're either parroting talking points or they are lying. All right. So where can people find you, Maddie? So they can find me on Twitter. Um, You can check the show notes for her Twitter handle. Yep. And what I'm working on now is exactly what you just described, what we are working on. You know, we've been talking a lot about this, but having a new vision for nuclear as sort of the sustainable center of a new American industrial policy. And we're doing that through the campaign for a green nuclear deal. So right now the website has a lot of great information about what we're doing at the state level, trying desperately to put out these fires and keep these nuclear plants online, but also coming up some policy papers and proposals for achieving 50% of our electricity from nuclear by 2050, which I think is an ambitious but achievable goal. Excellent. So Maddie, would you say that in order to do this, we're going to have to do it real big? Oh, we're going to have to do it real big. I'm a fucking big time. Ooh, bro, 